Hi, friends. I talk a lot about systems thinking on this podcast and thought I'd share one of the most potent actions you can take if you feel moved to be a different kind of leader for the 21st century. At Small Giants Academy, we developed our answer to the traditional MBA. We call it the MBE, a mastery of business and empathy. The MBE is a truly groundbreaking program which equips leaders with the tools, strategies, networks and philosophies to lead with purpose in these troubled times. Applications are open now for 2025. So head to smallgiants.com.au forward slash MBE to learn more and sign up. Australia is waking up. What you consume, how you get from A to B, where you choose to shop. These everyday choices matter. And who you bank with does too. Shape the world you want to see. Join the bank with clean money. Search Bank Australia. Hey there. On this episode of the Dumbo Feather Podcast, our friend and much-loved contributor, Lydia Fairhall, sits down with a hero of hers, the Waramai storyteller, Paul Callahan. Paul is an author and consultant who specialises in leadership development and well-being. In his mid-30s, he encountered a period of depression after realising the success he'd been striving for didn't match up with his internal measure. Drawing on a variety of tools, including Indigenous teachings, he was able to navigate his way to a truer, more whole embodiment of himself. Early this year, Paul released a book with his friend, Uncle Paul Gordon, entitled The Dreaming Path, Indigenous Thinking to Change Your Life, which details many of his experiences and learnings. Paul spoke with Lydia in February 2022. I just want to start by acknowledging the country that I'm on, Gubby Gubby and Yinnabara country, the border here, and also where you're calling from as well. I'd also like to acknowledge country right across this beautiful land. It's not a nation, it's many nations. And our people have walked this land since the beginning and they walked it with love and they walked it with respect, and they passed it on to us, the living right now, to love and respect as well. So I acknowledge all those footsteps right across this ancient land, and I acknowledge the people that are carrying on that tradition now and our communities throughout this country, and also to our future, the children, who will connect with our culture and connect with this land and hopefully feel as wonderful about who we are as an Aboriginal peoples as I do. Mm, bless. Thank you. That's so beautiful. I thought we might start from the place of learning a little bit more about you. I was reading a quote from Indigenous X this morning from a few years ago, and in it you said, I was the contemporary Aboriginal prototype. I was living the dream, but I wasn't living my dreaming. Are you able to tell us a bit more about the journey that really led to that statement? I sure can talk about the journey, and my journey is not that dissimilar to any person born in Australia in terms of their journey. And I think the reason I write and the reason I share is I want people to have a think about that journey because I don't think it's necessarily a good journey or a healthy journey or a journey of contentment or well-being. So my journey, I grew up in Karua, which is a small Aboriginal reserve about an hour north of Newcastle on a beautiful river called the Kuril River, and I'm a saltwater man. 
And I am the eldest of five and I found primary school a wonderful place of learning and I found that I was quite gifted in terms of a love of learning and that was because of a wonderful teacher I had in, in second year named Mr Grogan. We still call him Mr Grogan, all the black fellas from the Mish. <laughs> no, he's long gone because we loved him and he was Mr Grogan and he used to tell us stories. And he gave me a love of learning and that was wonderful. So primary school was a very nurturing and safe place for me where I felt good about myself. And then I went to Roman Terrace High School and it was a totally different environment. I found that I was in competition in classes and I found that the system wanted me to compete with other students mm. and I felt pressure to excel academically mm. because I didn't realise when I was in primary school that Aboriginal people were different, but in high school I realised it was different and I wanted to prove myself that I was capable of being accepted in the mainstream. But also, and this is a comment on systems and how systems need to change, the educational system was, and I believe still is, a place that provides learning but not the right learning holistically. So if you look at mm. the Aboriginal educational system, it was a very complex system of pedagogy and epistemology that provided us as children with everything we need to live a contented life as an adult, which meant living a life where we felt good about ourselves, but also living a life where we would contribute to the greater good in terms of the community around us and other communities and also the land. But what I found with the Western system was it was very narrow in terms of the curriculum, but I was very good at it. And I was the first in my family and in the community pretty much to go to Year 12. Yeah. But I felt a lot of pressure to succeed because non-Aboriginal teachers, meaning well, wanted me to do well, but I felt that pressure. Mm. Having said that, I graduated in the top 10% of the state. Mm. But the system wasn't a friendly one. I found that I was an outsider that couldn't fit in. So I didn't fit in with cool kids. I didn't fit in with the daggy kids. I couldn't get a girl to go out with me. And I felt incredibly isolated and I started to drink alcohol as a means to escape mm. the mental torment I was feeling. But as I got older, I realised the seeds were well and truly planted in terms of expectations of success. It was about education. It was about university. It was about a job. It was about earning money. It was about prestige. It was about power. It was about accumulating wealth and materiality. And so... I continued on that path for many years. I did matriculate to all universities, but a well-meaning careers advisor told me that I was not smart enough to go to uni, so I believed him. Mm. So I did a diploma in surveying. And then after that, I did a diploma in drafting. And then in my early 30s, I completed a commerce degree. I had no desire to understand commerce, and I majored in accounting, and I had no desire to understand accounting. The only reason I did the degree was a good Aboriginal friend rang me up and said, they're taking me to enrolments in a commerce degree today. You can <laughs> sign up. And I went, yeah, that'll do me. <laughs> I wanted to prove to myself that I wasn't stupid, that I could do a degree. But when I finished the degree, it gave me an understanding of the capital system <laughs> and the competitive market. And so if I look back at my life in terms of my journey, already I could see that I was entrenched in the educational system and I was entrenched in the capitalist system to try and prove myself wearing a white value system as my cape. Yeah. By the time I was 35, I was working at a university in marketing and I was lecturing in economics and quite successful in my own right. But 
I started to realise that I was showing symptoms of depression and mental health problems. And it was because of all the pressures. And I had a nervous breakdown. As I reached out to the medical system in terms of help for my recovery, because I knew I needed help, I found the system created more damage than healing because the well-meaning practitioners told me that I had a condition that was incurable. At the time, I was suffering from panic attacks, acute anxiety, agoraphobia. I couldn't talk to people on the phone. Mm. I didn't sleep. I didn't eat. I cried for months and months. And when I was labelled incurable, I thought, my wife is young. I've got three kids under five. They don't deserve an emotional cripple. So I'd better kill myself and I'll be sad for a little while, but then they can move on with their life because I've been told I'll never heal and I don't want to be a permanent hindrance to their future. So I went down the street to do that. Mm. And then as I was about to, a thought came to me and the thought said, no, you can do this, but you don't have to believe the labels that the system have put on you. You can walk back up the hill and choose here. You can choose to heal yourself and prove the system wrong and in doing so, show the way for others. And so that's what I decided to do and it wasn't easy. I found that the counselling helped me a little bit but not a lot. I found that self-help books helped me a lot. Yeah. It wasn't one self-help book that gave me all the answers. It was me harvesting bits and pieces from different readings. And so I started to heal a little bit and as I did, I realised that for my life, certainly as a young adult and an adult, I'd spent my time 24-7 trying to be all things to all people at all times because I needed to be accepted and I needed to be liked and the pressure got too much for me. So I made a conscious decision that from here on in, I'll respect other people's views, but I'm going to walk my footsteps and live my life the way I am meant to. And serendipitously or fortuitously or coincidentally or just by divine accident or just by accident, maybe, <laughs> I was invited to go bush and learn about our culture and that was a shock to me because I'd been told that there weren't any cultural people on the east coast of Australia, that culture was dead mm. and that if anybody offered it to me, they were liars and or thieves trying to steal things. So I went out with a degree of care going, I'll just see what this is about, but I do want to learn. And a door was opened that gave me access to the most amazing room that I could ever imagine in terms of culture, where the learning not only filled my empty spirit, which wasn't well, but also gave me emotional sustenance and also gave me concrete ways of thinking that I could use in my everyday life in a contemporary world. And that's where this book has come from because I thought I was living the dreaming, but I was living a nightmare until I was given access to culture. And now I truly am living my dreaming. And that's why the title of the book is The Dreaming Path, because we can all access this dreaming. The dreaming path is a metaphor for walking our footsteps and living the life that we're born to live mm. and not being caught up in these systems that take us away from that. So the education system takes us away from that because it says to succeed you need to do these things and it misses out on the bigger picture. Yeah, and in the book you talk about the five L's, law, loving, looking, listening, learning, and you, you speak about once you have these you're ready for the sixth which is leading. And I love this part so much because you really go into the difference between Western and Aboriginal understandings of leadership. And in that context, you're looking at focusing on people's strengths rather than their deficits. You're looking at a way of working 
that there is time enough to get done what needs to be done rather than this heavy emphasis on rush and urgency and all of these things. And also this concept that there are so many right ways rather than just one really narrow way. So I'm wondering in that context, if you could change one thing about the leadership of this country today, what would it be? I guess the key word, and it anchors back into traditional law and culture, is responsibility. Yeah. Our leaders have a responsibility, but they're not being responsible. Mm. If you look at traditional culture, we all had a responsibility for the Nurempa, which is the traditional word that explains the dreaming path. And the Nurempa says in English, I must always care for my place and all things in my place. That is the cornerstone of why we're born and then how we do that differs because we all have different skills. But when you think about government, and government is elected to govern, they're meant to be showing the way, which is responsibility. I see nothing in government to lead me to believe that anyone in government is primarily focusing on caring for their place and all things in their place. And it's because of the nature of government is populist, and so I need to get re-elected. And you're starting to see it now going into this election cycle Mm-hmm. We're starting to see all the pork barrelling, we're starting to see all the angst, we're starting to see the combative arguments of, yeah, they love China, you don't, <laughs> we're going to do this, you won't. So we're seeing all this combative stuff that, again, is a battle rather than sharing in unity, and it goes back to responsibility. So if you're responsible, then you sit down and you listen to the people and you do love them and you share. Yeah. You're coming from a place of popularity, you're not doing that. Yeah. And I guess it's almost like a big push to really encourage people to join in on that Western group think that you were talking about earlier. You know, that crossroads that you got to where you realise, hang on a second, there's another story here. I don't have to prescribe to this dominant narrative. And then comes this beautiful intervention of culture, which I guess in a really basic sense you would also call spirituality. Yeah. That spirit, that consciousness of spirit and walking with love and care and unity, it is, it's so oppositional. And it's almost like as Aboriginal people, we are told to advocate for positions of power and all of these things. Maybe we don't realise when we're doing that, that we're advocating for our eventual unhappiness because that world of material success can only take you so far. Yeah, and you've triggered a light bulb in me. The term spirituality, I've had quite a few interviews in recent times and most of them have been very strength-based and very Mm. safe, but I've had one or two that haven't been. And I get a feeling during those interviews that people roll their eyes at the term spirituality and or self-help and things like that. Yeah. And that's a bad rap and it's unfair. Spirituality doesn't mean fairy tale. No. Spirituality doesn't mean a lack of substance. Spirituality doesn't mean a lack of materiality in terms of authentic thought Mm. and things that you can use in everyday life because the cornerstone of Aboriginal spirituality, well, there are four key values, love, respect, humility and sharing. If you put them into your being and live using those four things every day, Mm and practice them, you'll find that you can still get on and earn money, pay the bills and do all those things, but in a way that puts you on a path of contentment. Mm. But a lot of this comes back to responsibility. Being a spiritual person doesn't mean we're airy-fairy, new age is floating off into the oblivion without any kind of sense of responsibility. 
Responsibility yeah. is a cornerstone. Again, the word cornerstone is a platform of Aboriginal spirituality. So I've cast a fairly dim view on our leadership in terms of responsibility. And it's not just government, by the way. It's also our CEOs of our corporations. Yeah. They're driven by PDs and the chair and the board and shareholders and all those things that, again, are very finite and very narrow in terms of world views. Mm. Taking the pressure off them for a second, as human beings, we all have responsibilities. And it's not just the responsibility to pay the bills. We need to think more broadly about how does the term Europa relate to me? How do I care for my place and all things in my place? Yes, there's my family. But what about my community? Mm. What about the land? And so you put the two together, we have a responsibility to make informed choice when we vote for our leaders. Yeah. yeah. As individuals, we're really, really important. Our old people say we're conceived in love, mm. we're born in love, we grow in love and we go back to love. And we're conceived and born for a purpose. And part of that purpose is our responsibility. So what is our responsibility to demand better leadership? Mm. And so that ties into the broader thought in terms of looking at the competitive system, this never-ending focus on scientific methodology, measurables and evidence-based data, mm. and the cynical eye cast at the arts. No different to when people say spirituality, that's for new age airheads. The arts cops are bad rap too because if you look at Aboriginal culture, we lived lives of contentment for tens of thousands of years. Yeah. And it was built on the arts, mm. our storytelling, our drawings, our dance, our language, our song, mm. because those things are powerful tools of sharing learning and showing values mm. and showing the way the old people call it giving you the rules, those things are embedded within us and they're part of us and yet we look at this Western world and the systems now say we're going to charge you more to do an arts degree because we need real people doing real things in a real world and so there's this kind of push into engineering and science-based areas which are super important yeah, but not at the expense of art. So our creativity is what makes us feel. Our creativity is what gives us memories. And the old people say, when we leave this world behind, all we leave behind is our story. Yeah. So make it the best story possible. Mm. So this goes back to our initial conversation about how I thought I was living the dreaming, but I wasn't. Mm. I wasn't living my story. I wasn't living a good story. And in times such as now when we've got COVID, it's a wonderful time to take a deep breath and sit back and say, am I living a good story? Yeah. Am I living a story where I'm walking the footsteps that I dreamed of walking when I was younger? Mm. Or am I walking the footsteps of other people's expectations? Or am I running the footsteps of just being incredibly busy where I'm just chasing my tail and I don't even know what my story is, I haven't got time for that, I'll worry about that when I'm 70 and it's too late. So we need to think about our story and if you imagine that you're 90 years old and you look back at your story, some people might say, yeah, I accumulated four cars and five toilets and a house with lots of bedrooms <laughs> and feel good about it. But a majority of people will look back at their story and say, look at these people that I've touched. Look at these people who are really feeling blessed that I'm part of their story and I'm feeling blessed that I'm part of theirs and they're part of mine. Yeah. 
And that's all the stuff that people ignore and say the arts are unimportant. They're central. And when you look at what happened when we came out of lockdown, not only did we miss going to the theatre and not only did music sustain us when we are in lockdown, but when we came out, we wanted to connect with nature. People are saying, oh, we can finally dance again. People are saying we can go to live venues mm. and listen to music. And then we are connecting with each other. So we need to rethink all these systems that surround us that compel us to pursue money and fame and fortune and ticking boxes of keeping everybody pleased and think about, well, I want to respect other people, but what is my story? Why am I here? If I really love doing paper mache, why can't I paper mache? And think about some of the things that give us joy. Think about some of those movies, The Minions. How funny are Minions? That wasn't created in a laboratory. That was someone getting out there and funky and going, wow. Now, I know whenever I watch a Minion, I just giggle and think, what a cool thing that is that's so funny. Because it's not the Minion, it's what they embody. They embody strength-based thinking. They embody joy. And our traditional way was that when you look at traditional footage of our old people, even though times are very tough and 90% of our people died in the Mm. first 100 years of contact, Mm. people sat around the fire and laughed. And you would know, Lydia, when we sit around with mob, what is the thing that we do a lot of? We'll laugh. I I took one of my sons out bush one day to meet some of the cultural men. And we got out of the car and he was a bit nervous but a bit excited and we're out in the desert. And I said, just stop for a second and tell me what you notice. And he said, Dad, the sky is full of laughter. Mm. And what a profound thing for a young man Mm. to notice. Have a think about where have you been where the sky was full of laughter and, hey, I love going to the footy and where we're all roaring and the sky is kind of full of noise and great. But think about where you've been where it's pristine and quiet Mm. and there's no noise except for laughter. I don't know if you just heard, but the kookaburras just started going absolutely berserk as you were saying They're listening in. Well, it's funny you would say that. When I had my breakdown in my depression, I started to heal myself and it was a long process. I had to be patient, but I knew from my reading that I just had to have faith and that eventually I would come out of the darkness. And, in fact, I came out of the darkness and my aim was to be the old me, but I surpassed that and became the new me, Yeah, which was far better me. But there was one instance, I was sitting outside my parents' house on an old five-gallon drum and I heard this really strange noise Mm. and I thought, what's that noise? I looked around and I realised it's me laughing. (laughs) I hadn't laughed for so long that I'd forgotten the sound. And then a couple of years later, I was back in the workforce and I was in a good place, but this particular day, that's what happens in our everyday lives. The burdens of a job and stresses got to me and I got home and I was feeling a bit down and I got out of the car with my head down and a gookandi, a cook, that's our Gadung word for the kookaburra, mm. just started belting out the biggest laugh and I looked up and I said, thank you, uncle. <laughs> thank you for that little touch-up because he was reminding me that I needed to remember to see the positive. Yeah. And that goes back to a yarn I share about the importance of colour. Mm. A lot of people I see walking, I don't even say walking, it's this slow kind of trudge through life. I can feel around them, they're just coated in grey. Yeah. Now think about back in the 60s when I was young, we watched black and white telly. Yeah. And we got so excited when colour telly came. (laughs) And if someone said, no, look, go back to colour telly, you'd go, no, that's artistic and it's nice, but no, I like my colour. 
So why would we choose to live a life mm. of black and white and grey? Why would we? And yet I see people living it all the time. They don't live in colour. And the colour is all around us. But it's a matter of understanding that and choosing to see colour and saying I've got to remind myself to see the colour. Yeah. And that is about then having gratitude for what we've got rather than what we don't have. It reminds now me that, of this idea yeah. that we could be asleep at the wheel. You know, we can be here and going through all of the motions of a life, but we're kind of awake but sleeping. That's a perfect way to describe it. We are. We're kind of zombified. Mm. And some of the old people talk about that. They say in terms of Aboriginal people, when our culture was taken away from us, we turned into zombies because our culture gives us our spirit and our essence. And that's why it's so pleasing to see throughout Australia now the rebirth of culture. We're yeah. starting to see more and more things happening that are just beautiful, not just through Aboriginal people embracing, it's also non-Aboriginal people saying, yep, yeah, we want to be part of this and jumping on board. And it's just wonderful. You'll see television shows that acknowledge the country the show is filmed in. You'll see acknowledgements of country now that are done with a degree of thought where you know they're beyond tokenism. And I guess that's the big thing that I would see in terms of challenging systems. We know as Aboriginal people that Australia is a very racist place. We know it's a very culturally unsafe place. Yeah. We know as an Aboriginal person it's very hard to not feel like an outsider. And so we've had people over many years advocate and argue for greater abilities for equality and how we need to address racism across the world. That's happening, and that's really important. But in some ways, Aboriginal people, what we've got that non-Aboriginal people don't have is we have our culture and it's the oldest living culture in the world. Someone asked me the other day, what makes you think that what you have to say is any better than Asian philosophy and others? And I said, well, no, they're all complementary. They all sit there and we can have all of them. But ours is the oldest culture in the world. It's there. It's waiting for us in the land. And Aboriginal people throughout the land are happy to share that. I haven't met an elder yet that's not happy to share story and culture. And so for me, that's the one thing that Aboriginal people have that we are willing to share as a gift with non-Aboriginal Australia and say, hey, when you celebrate this country, you can celebrate how you choose, but if you choose to, you can sit around the fire with us. Yeah. And you can celebrate not only what you have seen in terms of the past two years, but you can celebrate something that's as ancient as time. Mm. And you can sit with us and feel it. Yeah. And you can walk it. And then we can be truly brothers and sisters, and then we can celebrate together. And that's really important because if you look at the Aboriginal definition of healing, the Aboriginal definition of healing says we cannot be well if we aren't all well. So for this nation to be well, all Aboriginal people need to be well. Mm. And Aboriginal people might say, oh, no, but all the indicators say you're crook and we're not. Well, I would argue that for many, they're kind of spiritually crook and they're searching and seeking here is the answer here if they are willing to sit down. And the land's also crook. So for us all to be well, there's a chance here for us all to come together and I'm only one voice in the choir. Mm. We are all part of this. There are Aboriginal people throughout the country that are willing to share and to sit down and we all go forward together on that. You know, it's funny. I used to work out in the APY lands 15, 20 years ago. I was working on a homeland, so not even a remote community. The max population, there'd be 50 people there. When I was here, you know, life is pretty comfortable on the East Coast. We have our struggles and there's been a lot of stories in my family, just like every Aboriginal family of hardship, but we're definitely 
living a pretty privileged life in this generation. And I used to look from this perspective out there and think, oh, there's so many struggles, just that basic access to clean water, the right to food or a bit of broccoli that didn't cost $15 a bunch, just like basic things. And I used to feel sorry. But then whenever I'd get out there and look back at this Western-driven life here, I would just see the impoverishment in the opposite way. And I hear what you're saying. By all accounts, the focus and emphasis is on the lack of well-being in our communities, but that's when you're physically focused. When you switch it around and you look at the lens of culture and consciousness and spirit, it's the opposite. We all need access to basic provisions. I'm not denying that at all, but we also need a lot more than that to be whole people. Yeah, and Maslow captured that in his hierarchy that people argue goes back and forth, but in hierarchy you have your safety needs, which we all need, but then you get to that level, there are other things. And our culture can provide that. You just reminded me of a really lovely story and a sad story that an elder has shared with me on a number of occasions about a community he spent time with up on the West Australian Northern Territory border. would have been desert country. But those people lived in that country for tens of thousands of years, mm-hmm. in country where explorers died, in country that most people would say, I wouldn't go there if you paid me. For the last five minutes. <laughs> so you've got to ask yourself, those people could have marched for, say, a week and gone down to the Western Australian coastline to lobsters and shellfish and mm-hmm. all sorts of yums, but they stayed in their country since the beginning. Mm-hmm. Why did they? And the answer is because they knew their country, they loved their country, and that country gave them all they need. So this is about our unconscious bias and understanding what lenses we use to judge. Those people lived in that country happily forever, but then the Western system came in and said, you must be educated. Mm-hmm. So they were forced to stay in one place, which mm-hmm. meant they ate out all the food resource, and then the Western system said, oh, you've got no tucker, we'd better put in shop. Yeah. You've got no money, we'd better give you money. Oh, we'd get tucked at the shop, we better put in an all-weather road. And mm-hmm. then the system said, you fellas are costing us a lot of money, you're our problem. But the people didn't ask to be put there because they had their way. And that's a really important way to think. Imagine a world where there's no war. Mm-hmm. And that's really topical at the moment with Ukraine. Imagine a world with no war. Imagine a world with no crime, no homelessness, no hunger, no poverty. Oh, no, that doesn't exist. That's fairy tales. But that world did exist. It was Aboriginal Australia for tens of thousands of years. And people go, no, no, that's not true. Well, the evidence is there. You won't find evidence of war where people are in mass graves dead from the spear. You'll find it because of the gun, but not of the spear. People had skirmishes, but we didn't die. They say, yeah, but you didn't have the ability. Well, you look at Bill Gamage and Bruce Pascoe's work. They show that we had ability to build all sorts of things. And if you look at Aboriginal language, we had no word for hate anywhere. Yeah. So that world existed because we had everything we needed. But then that was all disrupted. Now, people might say, yeah, but we can't go back and live in New Humpy then. Well, we can't. Mm. This is every world. But it's about what can we learn from Aboriginal people and use in this contemporary world. And that's what I've done. I can live in both worlds quite happily now. But to go back to the start of this yarn up, I had my breakdown because I couldn't live in the Western world. Yeah. Because I was all messed up. Mm. And so by embracing culture and being given the gifts I've been given, I use them every day 
and I can drive a car and yeah. I've got a PhD and I can do all sorts of stuff in the Western world, but I find all these things I've been given is in the books I write help me achieve this place of contentment so I have balance in all those things. And that's the gift that we can share with everybody so that we can all do that. Aboriginal people don't want to see no Aboriginal people suffering. I can only speak from my perspective. I've never seen that. We all want to be sitting there happily, all enjoying what this beautiful land gives us. Yeah. Right about the time when we first met, when we had that beautiful day on country, I had walked away from that life not long before then. I had reached a peak in my career. There's no other way humbly to say I was doing well, you know, in that world. Something was just calling me forward. There was an inner calling that you can stay on this path and you can reach all of these milestones in terms of success and probably much like yourself, at times it felt right because I was always doing work in that social justice context. It was never just whatever those finance careers look like. At the same time, it was about running companies and big budgets and lots of staff members and getting a good wage and living in the city. I just remember one day calling my partner, told this story a few times, but just ringing him and saying, I just cannot take another single step. And I know every single person around us is going to think that we're crazy, but we need to leave. And we had no real security, but we were taking a leap of faith because that inner feeling was calling me forward. Within a couple of months, I was on country with you and sharing that beautiful experience. And I think, wow, imagine what our lives would be like if we'd just settled for material well-being. That was Paul Callahan in conversation with the wonderful Lydia Fairhall. Paul's book is out now at all good bookstores and it's called The Dreaming Path, Indigenous Thinking to Change Your Life. For more articles and conversations on systems change, check out issue 69 of Dumbo Feather magazine, available at dumbofeather.com forward slash shop.